the minister also synthesized, I think, in a manner that reflects what is it that, that galvanizes DECO officials as they run and fulfill their mandate abroad. Simply put, for us, national interest is a better life for South Africans. It is that which serves and advances the well-being of our nation. We will die in the trenches for that. We draw on Joel Nechitenze's further explanation of what national interest is. He defines it as an aggregate of things that guarantee the survival and flourishing of a nation state or a nation, and goes on to explain that in our terrain of diplomacy, national interest, the national interest of a particular country is usually counterposed to that of other countries. So, for example, multilaterally, countries meet each other for common endeavor on the basis of their individual national interests or regional interests as we were negotiating the 2030 Agenda for Sustainable Development. What Europe wanted out of that was driven by their collective uh, 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 interest, as it were. South Africa had a clear sense of what it, it wanted as defined in the National uh, Development uh, uh, Plan. A thing that we allude to in the document is that it needs to be understood that South Africa is an African country. We are an African country and a developing country at that. This is our characteristic when we engage with uh, other countries. I think this frustrates others who assume that South Africa is a European country that by some fluke of accident is at the bottom of the continent that's why the minister was talking about our history and location. We are African, first and foremost, and a developing country. And from there flows our views on uh, 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 things. And we have a right as a sovereign state to hold particular uh, views. The minister spoke to the elements of our national interest, in particular the constitution, and um, which is very explicit in laying the red lines for us in terms of national interest when it comes to, for example, human rights. It takes them in totality, civil and political, as well as socioeconomic and cultural uh, rights, but as a package that is indivisible and interdependent. We can't pick and choose what we, 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 we do. However, we have to bear, take into account the potential impact of what we do on all of these uh, rights as an indivisible uh, uh, package. And here's where, when we take this approach of national interest, we're going to clash with the United States of America. They don't believe in anything like socioeconomic rights. They don't exist, they say. We once had a delegation coming to sort us out here, yet our constitution is categorical about socioeconomic rights. And not only that, they're justiciable. When the constitutional court said of the Sasa case, there are rights that are so precarious that they can never be left in the hands of the private sector. That was an instruction that underpins how we 
view or how we, what we do in terms of a, a, a diplomacy. It sets a red line for, 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 a, for us a, 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 as it were. And uh, so we hope at the end of today, we'll come out, I think, with like a common sense. What helps us as diplomats is like a common grammar is, as a point of reference, you know. We have a syntax that encompasses all of this because at the end of the day, everything, language matters in diplomacy. Language uh, matters and uh, there are subtexts. And all of this, all of these subtexts and language embody in the multilateral area the national interests of different uh, blocks. So when Europe talks about gender, we know we need to get clarity. What exactly are you talking about on gender? When they talk about human rights defenders, we need to know what exactly they're talking about because we need to be able, or we already know because we know their character, characteristic. What kind of a block is this? What drives this block? It is their survival. And perhaps their dominance, the ability to shape the world. Minister, you quite rightly said this symposium takes place at a time of shifts in the global arena, which again in the multilateral uh, uh, arena, even before COVID, were unleashing contestations. Uh, it was as if everything that we knew was up for grabs. And the simple bifurcation of it is that we, as developing countries, but as South Africa, need from the world an order that will support our ambitions as articulated in the Constitution and ensure that we achieve uh, poverty eradication, uh, job creation, and uh, uh, address the income inequalities where we're at. But 2008 shook the world. What our counterparts need are things that will ensure sustained recovery as distinct from development. South Africa is a developing country, as I said, and an African country at that too. Our fate is intertwined with the fate of the, of the, of the, of the, continent, of the continent. So with, with that, as I said, the minister gave an extensive, I think, opening and set the context and uh, I hope that uh, the discussion will enrich us and arm us to uh, be sharper in how we proceed uh, forward. Our history, our history can never be forgotten. The history of struggle. It shapes our thinking. I think in some of us, as Ambassador Willile uh, probably might share later, we intuitively respond to injustice. And as former underdogs, we feel it's imperative for us to champion the fate of those that are in a similar situation that were in Western Sahara and Palestine. With that, Minister, let me introduce, we have what we are fortunate to have Dr. Mete was going to talk on the risks to the achievement of South Africa's national interest. Then we have Dr. Professor Zondi, who's going to talk about shifts in global institutions and alliances. And then uh, Mr. Singh, 
uh, sorry, Dr. Mbete is from the University of Pretoria. Professor Zundi is from the University of Johannesburg. Mr. Singh is from the Institute from the Security, Institute for Security Studies and will speak on the development of South Africa's national interest and foreign policy. And Professor Mdlekiana from the University of Johannesburg will talk on national sovereignty and the constitutional order. I usually say to people, we are a proper sovereign state, we're not a toy state. And as sovereign states have got national interests. And so with that, without any further delays, let me hand over to Dr. Mbete. Thank you very much, Ambassador. Uh, thank you so much for inviting me to be here, uh, Minister Pando, uh, Ambassador Ntlapo. We were told to uh, pay our due respects uh, to your Excellency's colleagues. It is wonderful to be here with you today. Um, I have been given the unenviable task of speaking first uh, <laughs> on the panel and uh, reflecting on um, the risks to the achievement of South Africa's national interest. In reading uh, the national interest document and in reflecting on um, how to frame uh, the risks to the national interest, and especially after spending the weekend at Nazarek, uh, deep in domestic politics. Um, I have decided to, um, to speak to you about the risks to national interest in five themes. Uh, the first being uh, socioeconomic risks, the second being political risks, the third being environmental risks, the fourth being external risks and separate to the fifth, which is the global context. And I will explain why uh, I've kept those two separate. Uh, before I begin, I'd just like to give some context of what South Africa is. Uh, last week, the uh, Status A released uh, their population statistics um, after uh, the recent census, and South Africa's population now sits at 60.6 million people. Of those 60.6 million people, 38 million are youth. The median age of South Africans is 28. 51.5% of South Africans are female, 81% are black African, and there is a youth bulge between the ages of 25 to 39. So the largest demographic of the South African population is between the ages of 25 and 39. Of those 60.6 million South Africans, 55.5% live below the upper bound poverty line of about 1,300 rand per person per month. So when we speak about the national interest, that is the nation of which we speak. And I think that's important to keep top of mind uh, when we think about, firstly, whose national interest are we speaking um, of, 
and when we think of what the possible threats then to that national interest could be. In the national interest document, uh, the um, Miroslav uh, Nincic, I think would be how I pronounce it, uh, is uh, quoted in that he contends that there are three principles that should be satisfied in uh, developing an unbiased conception of national interest, and those three are inclusiveness, exclusiveness, and external relevance. The inclusiveness principle is that um, the national interest should concern the nation as a whole, or at least a substantial enough subset of its membership to transcend the specific interests of groups and factions. The exclusiveness principle refers to a state seeking the national interest when it is not concerned with the interests of any groups outside its jurisdiction, except to the extent that it may affect domestic interests. This implies that the interests being pursued should at all times be related to the interests at home and not those of any group outside of its jurisdiction or territorial control. According to the external relevance principle, the needs in question should significantly be affected by the international environment and consequently by the conduct of foreign affairs. In slight deviation to this framework, I am going to begin by identifying as a major risk to the national interests socioeconomic factors, which are, could be framed as being domestic issues, but which I think pose a serious threat to many of the aspects of the national interest uh, defined in this document, particularly those around solidarity, around uh, African solidarity, African development, and South Africa's identity as an African country. The first one, and I think the most important and critical one, is unemployment. South Africa's unemployment crisis is the greatest threat to South Africa's national interest and its sustainability uh, as a sovereign state. Um, particularly, uh, the um, increase, uh, youth unemployment is a threat to the stability of, um, the, of South Africa as a, as a sovereign state and the achievement of South African national interests. In the first quarter of 2022, youth unemployment uh, amongst young graduates was at 32.6%. Over 40% of young South Africans uh, under the age of 35 are not in employment, education, or training. In many countries, Unemployment hitting 5% or 6% or 8% is an emergency and something that needs to be dealt with. I recently was doing research on Zambia and the motivations for young people to turn out to vote in last year's election um, and bringing in the new UPND government. And Zambian unemployment had reached 
And it was at such crisis levels that young people turned out at huge numbers to vote the incumbent government out. 11%, another SADC country, I'm not talking about Europe or Asia, one of our neighbors. So there is, I would argue, no way of trying to conceptualize the national interest without centering the unemployment crisis. And I like the framing of this document or the characterization of this document as a framework document that informs policy. And as such, I think that all of our policies, whether they be education or economic um, or housing or transport, should have at their center addressing the unemployment crisis facing South African youth. And this isn't a question, you know, it was interesting listening to politicians over the weekend framing this as uh, ensuring the future of South Africa, the future of South African youth. This is a present problem. It's not a future one. It's right here and now. And it's a problem that then is linked to issues like very high rates of crime. It is linked to and directly related to this particular document and the emphasis on South Africa's interest being um, Africa's interest in African development is the extremely dangerous levels of anti-African xenophobia. I'm sure you all know what happened in Krugersdorp on Friday. Any of you spend as much time on Twitter as I do, I'm working on it. You will know just how scary the vitriol is against Africans on Twitter. And it's gone now, it's not Nigerians, you know, people that people can think of very foreign. It's Basotu, people next door, who share ethnicity, language, history, culture, with a significant part of South Africa's population. There is no way that you can have a national interest that is about African solidarity when South African people hate Africans. I think a big part of addressing uh, the unemployment situation that we have and very high levels of poverty is bringing on board the private sector. And I found it interesting that I think there's a paragraph uh, about the private sector in the national interest document. And it made me think of the late ambassador, Dumsani Kumalo, who used to say that South Africa's biggest diplomatic core are all the businessmen walking around the continent. The diplomatic representation of South Africa is ShopRite and all the mining companies. What is their role? How do we bring them in? Rushing along to the political risks to national interest, 
To me, to this, this is political and administrative risks to national interest. First one I'd like to highlight is our weak public service. Public servants that don't do their jobs. And we see that manifested at municipal level, at provincial level, at national level. And where we have people working for the South African state who are not working in the national interest of the South African state. We've seen in the past few months what has come out of the Home Affairs Department about Home Affairs officials that sell IDs and passports. Um, we've seen what's come out around our very poor education levels at basic and basic education teachers who aren't in class. The patriotism, the sense of national interests amongst the people that work in the South African state, I think is something that poses a threat or the lack of uh, patriotism, a sense of national interest is something that poses a threat to uh, the national interest as a whole in the implementation uh, of the very admirable ideals in this document. It would be remiss of me not to mention, having given the way I spent my weekend, uh, the political infighting in the governing party, but also manifestations that we are seeing of uh, fighting between different political parties and different political interests, and the insecurity that that is causing um, at all levels of South African society. And what we are seeing emerging politically and similar, I think, to what we are seeing in many countries across the world is the re-emergence of right-wing ideology and rhetoric and its growing political currency. So the political parties that are growing most rapidly in South Africa are those that espouse ideals that contradict the ideals set out in our constitution and in our constitutional order. When the current MMC of uh, the city of Johannesburg lost a court case last week um, about removing vendors and informal traders from the CBD, the number of people then that went onto social media saying that this constitution is the problem. We've given people too many rights in this constitution. And it is, high, and it is not improbable that South Africans will elect a government in the next 12 years that will have a big enough majority or be able to amass a big enough majority to reverse fundamental parts of our Bill of Rights and other parts of our much-loved and much-lauded Constitution. And we will have chosen it. South Africans are likely are on the way to electing a government that will reverse the 1996 Constitution democratically. And I think that is something of serious concern. Third, 
third is the environmental risks. Um, I know that there's a lot of discussion uh, at the moment around extreme weather and the impacts of climate change. I think one of the major risks to the sustainability of South Africa as a sovereign uh, uh, state is uh, water. There is uh, research that was released, I think it was a report by Amnesty International that showed that there would be, I think, a 17% deficit in uh, water resources by 2030. And human beings cannot, I mean, we're having a tough time with electricity, but we really can't live without water. So managing water resources, ensuring the sustainability of our water supply is a matter of national interest. And that means that we may need to rethink the way that water is managed administratively. Where do we place that responsibility? And how do we factor in our water management into the way that we define our national interest? The fourth is external links and external threats. And here I am particularly concerned with the links between the white nationalist right in South Africa and the white nationalist right in the rest of the world. We have seen increasingly and this is an old, this has been a building trend, uh, I think, that came, that began growing exponentially from 2015, 2016. But we've seen increasingly the adoption of the rhetoric of the white right in, of the American right, of the British right by South African um, people and South African groups. And I put this here as an issue of national interest because this, the, this movement actually is organized, it's international, it's a white right international. It is incredibly well resourced and very powerful. And Last year, I was sent a photograph of young Polish, young Polish men, 20, 18, 19, in free Janusz Walusz t-shirts. And all they know is that Janusz Walusz is a proud Polish patriot who is imprisoned in a black country. This is real, and it's growing, and it's a threat. And then finally, this is why I separated it from the global context, which is the weakening of multilateral institutions and the damage to the rules-based international order, which is spoken about in the National Interest Framework document, but I think is something that really should remain top of mind as we think of how we define and exercise South Africa's national interest uh, through our foreign policy. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dr. Mbeti. We will move on to uh, Professor Zondi. Please help me with time. 
good morning and, and, and good morning to everyone. Thank you very much, Minister, Deputy Minister, and the leadership of the, the department uh, for this conversation. And thanks to Stembile for, for making my job redundant. Uh, fortunately, I'm, I'm asked to look at the global environment a little bit more. Um, the, uh, the national interest in the context of uh, ships in, in, in global uh, institutions. But thanks so much, uh, Sisi, for, for laying it out so well. Um, let me just make uh, five points. Uh, okay, maybe make one point and four conclusions. Uh, so whichever direction it is. But the first one is about ships. Um, it, it's very important that this uh, discussion was delayed. Um, I know that a lot of people have been talking about this national interest uh, work uh, that needs to come out because people think that it is no longer sufficient to say everybody generally knows what South Africa stands for, that perhaps we need to codify it. Uh, perhaps delaying it uh, allows us to be wiser in doing it than we would have earlier on. Uh, so that shift in time is, is, is actually an advantage for us to harness. We now know what works and what doesn't work. Then stuff like that. The second point to make about the shifts is this. There are three areas of shifts that I think we need to be alert to, and I know you are know, we know it. One is the one we like focusing on, which is the pillaring of the international order. The pillars of the, the pillaring of the international order. That pillaring thing, that pillaring has been shifting all the time, and there is likelihood that it's going to shift going forward as well. Um, from unipolar to bipolar to multipolar to unimultipolar, as we said in the, in the, in the mid-20s, uh, in the, in the mid-2000s, to, 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 uh, to bipolar with the rise of China, to bimulti, which is the, the two plus the rest, um, bimulti, and, and our, we, don't, we don't know which direction this is going to do. Because increasingly, the uni is no longer a single country. The, the uni is a collection of countries. As you see with the question of Ukraine, when you say uni, you don't mean one country dominate, but you mean a coalition of countries that identify as one uh, dominate, and all of that. So the, where this is going, we, we'll have to think about it, because it has an implication for all our national actions and our international uh, uh, relations. The second one, in, uh, when we talk about shift, we talk about the hierarchical order. The hierarchical order uh, around which the world is organized has a long history. Uh, going back to the Roman Empire, the ambition was moving that there, but firmed up in the last 500 years, <clears throat> excuse me, after Columbus um, um, got lost and landed in what became Americas, and it was not so called, it was not said it got lost, it was said it discovered. Um, and from that point, a new order emerges, and that is hierarchical. That is because we've all come to accept this idea, which is not the only truth, that power is organized hierarchical, and therefore the duty for everyone is to acquire it, accumulate it, and inevitably, it means when you accumulate, you rob someone of it. In, it, it. By nature, you rob someone of it. So it happens at every level, global level, continental level, regional level. The notion of power as hierarchical, the way we've come to accept, which is not old, 
it's only about 500 years old, part of the Euro modernity idea, uh, is perhaps part of the challenge we are facing that leads to permanent contestation over this power, permanent, even within the, those who are at the center, permanent contestation about this accumulation of power and order there. The, the third one about this shift is shifts in attitudes. Certainly the, the shift in attitude at every level, shift in attitude about uh, all manner of things, about how, uh, who must dominate, who must not dominate, shift in attitude about what we should do, the attitude about solidarity, and all of this kind of thing. Even though they use the word solidarity, they shift attitude in attitude about what it is. And this shift in attitude, the problem with it is that they are not moving in any direction uh, firmly, but they may be moving in every direction, and that confuses us because we are better able to handle a trend that moves in one direction. But at global level, this direction is various direction. One direction wins for a moment, and then there is a, a massive change and all of that. I don't want to elaborate that. The second point I wanted to make is with regard to global power balances, that given what I've said, they present huge limitations for what we are able to do. And that is why um, idealism is very important for us because it buys us time between the time when it is not ideal for us to do what we're supposed to do and the time when it actually happens. You know, take a, a very practical example of Latin America. Uh, Latin America tends to shift to the left and to the right all the time. Now, idealism enables us to keep the idea, the, keep the vision, keep the plan for a time, for a dark time, the valley of the shadow of death of development under the right wing, because the right wing time will end. It swings every five, six, seven years. So idealism helps us to... Uh, uh, to pick up those opportunities when it happened. And I think when we hosted the, the, the Global Conference Against Racism in 2000, it was a precious opportunity for us to do what we've been waiting for for 30 years after the World Peace Conference uh, that took place in, uh, in, in, uh, in what was Yugoslavia at the time and had made this point a very big point. But we'd wait for 30 years for an opportune time to happen in, 20, in 2002 in Durban. And it happens that way. You keep the idea going for a precious opportunity to happen. I think the idea of solidarity as a key mechanism of conducting international relations was helped by the presence of COVID-19, which made it not debatable that shared challenges require us to pull resources together. But whether we harness that and keep it and maintain it and lock it in into the system so that it, we don't have reversal is an, it's another question. The, the, the related to that, it's not just the global imbalance that is a problem, but it is instrumentalization of it, weaponization of it. The, the, the imbalance of power is an out, outcome of how everything has been structured, especially after the Second World War. But the, the instrumentalization of it by, for example, creating exclusive coalitions that must impose an idea about how we should respond to the question uh, of, 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 of Russia and Ukraine, or of, um, of trips and the provision of accessible medicine 
to those who cannot. And that the creation of these coalitions that are exclusive, that us against them, other with us or them, is instrumentalization. Militarization, unilateral action is another one. The third point um, I wanted to make is that uh, the global commons uh, therefore has been a huge platform for us to advance our agenda. And I'll say us, I mean those on the margins of this hierarchical global order. Uh, you may be in Fiji, or you may be in Haiti, or you may be in uh, Uzbekistan. Uh, we share this thing of being on the margins of the system, and we share this kind of hope that the global commons are a platform where we find the convergence of our national interest, and that enables us to have international or joint international action. And, and therefore, our greatest uh, challenge would be, now that we have spelled out our interest, which we already know, how do we keep harnessing that convergence of national interest around global commons? What are these global commons that we share with the largest number of countries in the world that we can then use to make advances where there may be differences in culture and history and other things, but we definitely agree that there must be reduction of poverty, or we definitely agree that injustice anywhere is unacceptable, or we definitely agree that war can never solve any problem, but peace is a superior idea. What are these global commons around which we can find the convergence of interest, even if we instrumentalize it ourselves? The fourth point, uh, skip over everything, the fourth point is the, the ideological. The ideological, uh, uh, dear colleagues, uh, it remains very important, which is very important what the minister then says about this is our ideological outlook, this is our uh, framing of how we see the world, because it's progressive internationalism. And progressive internationalism would be understood because we understand other internationalism. We understand the liberal internationalism. We understand the neoliberal internationalism. We understand the um, right-wing internationalism. Trump really represented it very well, which is to be international while uh, by refusing to be international to be international by just moving everything, making international national. They, I, I can't explain that, man. But progressive internationalism has been associated, going back again to the World Peace Conference of Yugos, in Yugoslavia, uh, with belief in the international law, belief in the institutions of global governance, uh, while reforming them, a multi-level approach to internationalism. But, Minister, the, our pronouncing on this suggests that we will not be statist. And that is very difficult for governments not to be statist. It would mean that if we need to handle the issues in the DRC, we will take accord along. Because there are certain things government can't say and do, but accord can say and do. It means that when we have to handle the issues of international digital migration, we will take MTN along not reluctantly, but enthusiastically, because they are part of the national, but the national is not governmental. Um, but there are implications we need to think about when we put out those ideas. Pan-Africanism is also another one that has implications, some of them pointed out by my, my sister, Ustembi. Uh, part of it is the fact that Africa is a contested idea. Africa is not a one thing. It's a contested space, not entirely ours either. It's donated by non-Africans too. There are some non-Africans that have a more influence on African 
developments than we who are Africans do. We must be very realistic about it. And then the neocolonial designs are very important. And Africa is a fragmented space. It was by design that it was so. Berlin was not an insignificant word. Ali Masri calls it the curse of Berlin. It remains with us in very deep ways that we hardly ever realize. We crack at points when we need to coalesce. Self-hate is a very important part of it, colleagues, you must all know. Part of the reason why we always talk about South Korea being at the same point as a number of countries in Ghana and other things in, 19, in 1961, but South Korea moves up the ladder like this and Ghana doesn't move there. Part of it are non-material elements of that. Um, what do we mean? Um, um, Amika Cabral calls it the, the dissonance, the social dissonance of a society, which is deeper than fragmentation, deeper than division. Something really deep in the soul of a country was interfered with, and you are hoping to, it to grow as fast as those that did not have that. And lastly, maybe, uh, I must rush to saying that, but all of these um, has to, all this effort we want to do, has to be mindful, uh, uh, has to come up against our ability to ensure that our ideas are understood, not just by governments across the world, but by peoples across the world. South Africa's greatest advantage, I remember, with COP17, was the fact that for once we had a government in the negotiations that had views that were similar to those who were protesting outside the organization. Sometimes we forget to do that, that we have a shared view with critical civil society. So we, are, we outnumber those who are in the room because we have the share, exactly the same views with those who are outside. At the time, it was the idea of common but differentiated responsibility. That idea, we were pushing it internally, but it was actually an idea of the World Social Forum, which I attended, of the World Labour Forum, uh, of the anti-globalization movements, and, and all of those that. We shared a view. But our ability to realize that they are also with us, and harness them, and all that, is something we need to think about on many issues. Even on this trips issue about vaccines or COVID vaccines, it's a view shared by global civil society. The, the, the Southern African Civil Society Forum said the same thing. The ECOSOC of the AU, when it met last year online, it said the same thing that we're pushing. So we have a view that is popular, but do we quite realize that it is popular? And lastly, in, in that popular, element of that popular is the youth. But we cannot speak for youth without the youth. We cannot speak for youth without the youth. So we have to remember they are the majority and they are also the future. They are the ones who are going to live with the consequences of us achieving or not achieving Agenda 2063. They will be there. We want them. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, uh, Professor. Uh, Zundi, you were efficient with time. You saved us three minutes. Thank you. <laughs> we'll now move on to uh, Mr. Singh on uh, the development. Sorry, on um, the development of South Africa's national interest and foreign policy. Over to you. Thank you, Ambassador. 
Minister Pendo, Deputy Minister Botes, um, Program Director, Chairperson, uh, Ambassador De Seco, Excellencies, ladies and gentlemen, um, it really is a privilege for me to address such an esteemed uh, panel of speakers uh, and, and such an esteemed audience this morning. Chairperson, the task I've been given is to provide a brief reflection on the developments of South Africa's national interest and in foreign policy. I must admit, though, that when I first saw this topic, um, uh, my immediate reaction was that I would be singing to the choir here uh, because, you know, given the audience that we have. And accordingly, I thought it would be best to structure my thoughts uh, along just uh, three key points for consideration um, in the discussion that will follow. So firstly, and in addition to the keynote um, address uh, on recent developments relating to the framework documents, I will touch briefly on how South Africa's national interest has been historically defined and developed. Uh, and secondly, how has this contributed to the substance and the trajectory of South African foreign policy priorities? And lastly, building on uh, Sitembile's earlier remarks, what are some of the key opportunities for us to capitalize on? and the challenges we must confront and arrest uh, in order to optimally pursue our national interest within the international system moving forward. Uh, and I am aware of time, so I will keep my uh, remarks quite short. Uh, I should add that my remarks are, of course, primarily based on our experiences at the Institute for Security Studies in working closely with the South African governments, the South African foreign policy establishments over many years, uh, and, and specifically uh, in responding to the various human security challenges confronting South Africa and the African continents in general. Excellencies, uh, to begin with, I think it's important for us to focus our attention on the primary sources in which South Africa's national interest has taken shape over the years. While the Constitution is, of course, the guiding light which affirms the core values and principles that direct South Africa's engagements, on the world stage. There are, of course, a number of documents, official documents, that specifically speak to the long-term foreign policy priorities of South Africa. And, of course, importantly, which are viewed in isolation from the more pragmatic, short-term foreign policy priorities of, of specific individual political administrations. So all of these documents in some way help us to aggregate domestic interests and broad public interest such that these are, can specifically direct and inform South African foreign policy. I think the most commonly referred to documents to this effect include, for example, the 2011 Foreign Policy White Paper, the National Development Plan, the 2019 Foreign Service Act, um, and, and the National Security Strategy, amongst uh, just a few. So these documents bring to the fore defining issues which must effectively inform and drive how the country should pursue its interests on the world stage. These include, for example, the centrality of South Africa's commitments and capability toward promoting democracy, the rule of law, human rights, and peace and security. The necessity for our foreign policy to be people-centered and guided by notions of solidarity and social and economic justice. The understanding that South Africa's own development, peace and prosperity is intricately intertwined with that of the Southern African region and the continent more broadly. And accordingly, the importance of placing Africa at the center of our international relations. 
There's also the acute acknowledgments that power imbalances across the international system and this, uh, necessitates a need to forge and champion South-South solidarity, as well as to reform the international govern governance system. And additionally, these documents make clear that the pursuit of our interests on the world stage must be informed and seek to address the various issues that define our domestic agenda, particularly as these relate to addressing poverty, unemployment, and inequality, as the minister earlier mentioned. Beyond these documents, we also see national interests take shape within, for example, the 96 White Paper on National Defense for the Republic of South Africa, the 99 White Paper on South Africa's participation in international peace missions, and, of, and also the 99 and 2015 Defense Reviews, um, amongst another, a number of other official government papers. So when read together, these documents speak to a more traditional understanding of the fundamental purpose of foreign policy and what South Africa should aim to pursue in its various bilateral and multilateral engagements. And, the, and these are made with respect to, of course, safeguarding the sovereignty and territorial integrity of the country uh, and the well-being of its citizens, aligning and rationalizing our defense forces for the good of the region and the continent, and orienting our civilian, military, and police contributions to international peace and security efforts in a, in a way that best responds to our commitment towards the promotion of human rights, democracy, justice, and international law, the collective interests of Africa in world affairs, and the protection of South Africa's constitutional order. It should also be noted here that for the most part, these various documents uh, followed from extensive draft consultative processes with inputs from a wide array of different um, government stakeholders and civil society actors. And consequently, the refinement over time of the national interest has indeed been fairly transparent and democratic and often characterized by robust uh, debate and, and oftentimes disagreements over how our broad constitutional values uh, and principles may be interpreted and utilized in order to direct and inform uh, South African foreign policy priorities. More importantly, these interests have been fairly consistently expressed in our foreign policy throughout different periods, marked by different South African political administrations since 1994 from the early idealism of the Mandela era to the more aspirational and pronounced search for re, uh, regional leadership under Mbeki, to a more pragmatic turn uh, and emphasis on South-South cooperation, uh, and to the current focus on renewal and clawing back lost gains on the world stage. While we will, of course, all disagree with this kind of simplistic characterization, I think we can all agree on the fact that South Africa's expressed commitments on the world stage, its expressed obligations within multilateral institutions, and our expressed priorities in our regional and continental engagements have indeed been consistent and reflective of the national interest by the various historical documents I've just mentioned. The development of a national framework document is of course therefore welcomed as it assists us in finally providing a single key resource upon which we are able to understand, assess, and monitor how South Africa's international engagements are responding to these interests. And whether our foreign policy is in fact rationalized, operating according to the key values and principles 
enshrined in the Constitution and informed by years of consultation, public inputs, and evidence-based research analysis and policymaking. So, Chairperson, uh, Excellencies, um, the development of this framework uh, is undoubtedly a positive development and should be commended. However, uh, and this is the inevitable however that we must all confront, uh, and, and building on Sitimbile's um, earlier remarks, there are major challenges standing in the way of South Africa pursuing and realizing its national interest on the world stage. Uh, remaining cognizant of the time I've been provided, I won't go into too much detail here, as many of the points have been covered, but I think it's worth pointing out that the challenges faced by South African foreign policy actors can primarily be attributed to the disjuncture, or should I say more importantly, a perceived disjuncture between what is said and what is ultimately done in pursuits of the national interest. While the expression of our, of our national interest on the world stage has remained fairly consistent, tangible actions, initiatives, interventions to illustrate and concretize South Africa's commitment to, for example, human rights, democracy, rule of law, and international peace and security have often uh, sometimes fallen short of expectation. And this is, of course, by no means a challenge uh, faced uniquely by South Africa. But by Durko's own admission in the 2018 Foreign Policy Review, these unmet expectations have clearly eroded the once significant reserves of political and moral capital that the country once was able to wield, allowing South Africa to more effectively punch above its weights in the international system and to consequently pursue its national interests more freely. South Africa's clear commitment to the peace, security, and stability of the African continent, for example, is unambiguous. It's clearly illustrated uh, through recent high-level multilateral engagements uh, on the United Nations and the African Union and the South African uh, development community amongst uh, a number of other organizations. However, the country's bilateral interventions in support of these multilateral positions have not necessarily reflected the central place that Africa occupies in our international relations, or the extent to which the continent's peace, security, and development is tied to our own. So the perceptions of this disjuncture also made all the more stark given that the priority that South Africa once afforded its African agenda, in which South Africa played an outsized role in taking the lead and effectively underwriting the costs of vital regional and continental institutions, championing the creation of new institutions and policy frameworks, actively working toward mediation and peacemaking roles across the continent's conflict hotspots, and providing considerable technical and operational contributions to multilateral peacekeeping and peacebuilding efforts. Again, Chairperson and Excellencies, this is not to say that South Africa is no longer does any of this but rather that we are no longer playing this role to the extent that we once did, and that we are not adequately exploiting the full spectrum of tools and capabilities that we have at our disposal to pursue our national interest in a more directed, influential, and strategic manner. And I say this bearing in mind, for example, the, the, the drawn-out transition of the um, African Renaissance and International Cooperation Fund uh, to the South African Development Partnership Agency, which should be one of the most vital tools to pursue bilateral programmatic efforts in support of conflict resolution, peace building, 
and democratic consolidation across the continent. I also say this bearing in mind the international relations desks within a number of metropolitan and, and municipal local governments, which often do not coordinate their strategic engagements with international stakeholders in a coordinated or coherent manner with national government officials. And I also say this bearing in mind the wealth of expertise and experience found among South African civil society, think tanks, academia, and grassroots level organizations, which could be called upon and leveraged by governments in undertaking these kinds of strategic bilateral interventions across the region. As I come to an end, um, just one final, uh, another significant issue in the developments and pursuits of the national interest relates, of course, in, to the increasingly turbulent and volatile uh, international system, requiring ever more responsive foreign policy decision-making on increasingly polarizing issues as they emerge, as well as requiring an ever more adept capacity for public diplomacy. While state-to-state -state diplomacy may often be conducted on the features and merits of individual cases, an increasingly uncertain future may require states like South Africa to develop a more systematic framework for uh, detailing how to engage with categories of states. This could be based on clear objective criteria relating to, for example, whether or not these states are democratic, inclusive, and whether or not they mirror our own constitutional values. Chairperson, Excellencies, thank you once again for this opportunity to engage with you. In the interest of time, I will conclude my remarks here. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Mr. Singh. You were dead on time. And now over to Prof. Mulejan. Thank you. Thank you, Ambassador. Good morning, everybody. Um, I will time myself, uh, Madam Ambassador, so don't worry about it. I was, uh, thank you for the invitation. I was somewhat surprised by the invitation. Uh, I are specialist, I clicky punch. So I didn't think they would invite uh, someone who focuses on history and domestic affairs, but I'm delighted nonetheless to be here. Um, mine is a, is a call to reimagine ourselves as a nation, to revisit our national identity in order to counter the immediate challenges that are posed by the region and the continent. I've been given a topic, I address that topic, but I can't promise that I address it in its entirety or exclusively. But there's this key point, as I say, of consideration for reimagination that I want to put across. The key question really I'm asked to, 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 to ponder here is how do we interact with the rest of the world in a manner that doesn't compromise uh, but advances our national interests. And these national interests, domestically, they are quite clear, and they are spelled out uh, eloquently in the document, economic, uh, security, um, uh, and all those. Um, so, so one need not, need not go into detail there, but I will touch on them as I go along. Uh, but these interests, uh, also extend to the region. Um, and these regional interests may not be obvious, but they are equally important. Um, because whatever happens in the region impacts on our ability to achieve our own objectives here. So in a way, there is a, there is a necessity to 
as we pursue our domestic interest, somewhat put equal effort to addressing problems that surround us in this, um, uh, in this country. For instance, the economies in the region, our neighbors around us are not doing well. And inevitably, as any other human being anywhere in the world, as it has happened in history, they will continue looking for places where they are likely to find prosperity. Our urgent problem that we are seized with, which is a popular outcry, is the influx of immigrants, both legal and illegal. We cry, we complain about this issue, we protest as if it's an issue that we can protest away, but it is an issue that will remain with us so long as the economies around us are not in a, in a sustainable or stable condition. So it's a problem that will remain with us. Then the question becomes, what do we do with that? Hence my point about the interconnectedness of our domestic and regional issues, because these are closest and immediate and with a direct impact on us. Secondly, what we are as South Africans or become as we grapple with this issue has a demonstrative effect on the rest of the continent. The vibrancy of our constitution, or rather democracy, and the prosperity of our country becomes illustrative of the viability of democracy, an experiment that has not been unanimously accepted on the continent. Today, Rwanda is turning itself into a penal center for Britain. Rwanda dictatorial government is becoming somewhat fashionable, pointed at as a model of development. There was a time when the rest of the world was calling for democracy because it recognized the universal value of democracy, equality. And now with Rwanda's development and other parts of the continent not doing so well, everyone is asking why not follow Rwanda? And the attractiveness of this country is because of economic development. So democracies are somewhat challenged, are questioned, especially in relation to their ability to deliver. Here in this country, we've often heard that perhaps we have too much democracy. We talk a lot. We need to cut down on consultations, have someone strong, and they point us to Rwanda. So the success of our democracy is important to underscore that democracy can also deliver. You need not undercut or undermine human rights to achieve a better life. But of course, we do face serious challenges in this country. As I said earlier, illegal immigrants particularly are flowing into the country in large numbers. People complain that they are taking their jobs. Alongside this seems to be a, a uncertainty within official on, the, on our immigration regime. What do we do with this? Do we allow to be? Uh, now and then you get to hear a uh, foreign uh, spokesperson for this department on, on, on TV, radio saying, no, 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 we do allow foreigners to come in provided they have skills. Foreigners complain or other applicants complain that we have applied, we've waited for so many. Rhetorically, 
there is a declaration of openness to foreign nationals, especially those with skills. But in terms of the infrastructure, the openness of, of our country, it's not, it's not there. We are uncertain, should we allow them in or not? And this uncertainty is not, is not unexpected because we are a sovereign country, a country born out of nationalism a country with a strong sense of ownership of who we are as a nation. And so we have come to prioritize our own people, our own people first, those who have been formerly marginalized. It's a typical outcome of a country that has had a long struggle uh, to emancipate its own people. To, to, right. However, at the heart of that, at the heart of that is a problem, it's a definitional problem. It's an identity problem that we need to grapple with. Um, we need to grapple with, with this problem mainly because it is imposing itself on us. Whether we like it or not, we'll continue to have foreign nationals coming in. And, and, and they come in whether we like it or not, they sneak in and they demand. Uh, uh, just this past Christmas, there were more kids born to foreign nationals than there were to to locals in some of these hospitals. That's, that's, that's the extent to which they, they are demanding, they are stating their claim on the national resources. Uh, and so, we need to recognize as well that we, we are not the only country to deal with, with this problem, this immigration problem. Um, Europe has had to contend with this for a while now, for a number of reasons. Uh, poor economies in Eastern Europe, for instance, instability in the Balkan states and all that, has led, led to, to, to exodus of folks in those countries into Europe, uh, Western Europe particularly. Um, poor economies also in Eastern Europe. Uh, these people forced themselves into Britain, France, and, 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 uh, and added to that where needs within internally, the aging population, um, the, the desire for skills that were absent in those countries. Uh, so big was this problem, especially in France. Uh, France has, uh, they've had to, to, to initiate a debate on, on what it is to be French. Because you have all sorts of people from all over the world flocking into France. Um, there were, of course, nationalists, uh, extremists who were not happy with this, but nonetheless, it was something that was happening. And it became so prominent uh, in the public space, in the country. Uh, there were issues about uh, French identity, whether it was, it was okay for Muslim kids to wear attire that covered their faces and heads, and this is not what it means to be French, they said. But the point is that France needed some of these skills and these people were forcing themselves uh, uh, into, into the country. I'm not sure how, how, how this debate has been, has been settled, but it is quite clear sitting here in this part of the world that France is no longer white. Um, a lot of Muslims, most, most African folks, different religions, um, that country is changing. 
the so-called uh, culture is changing. And I think uh, in some corners they've admitted that they've somewhat become an immigrant nation of sorts. An immigrant nation forced by circumstances. So these debates come. What countries declare themselves uh, at, a, at a particular point in history and that their, their identity they assume at a certain point sticks because that's what the country is at the time. But the world changes, factors emerge, dynamics within countries emerge, and countries have to now grapple, who are we? I think we are at who are. Unfortunately for us, this is a second question on about who are we, because we're grappling with this united in diversity. Stay was talking about the right wing here in South Africa who are you know, deceiving us into believing that they're a civil rights movement, when they are really a racist organization. So we, we, we and, and we, we're being forced to grapple, reconcile with these racist folks. And on the other hand, we, we have, you know, foreign nationals coming in and, and locals are now complaining that these people, it's, it's a double whammy, right? Uh, parallel problems that we have to deal with. But it is something that we have to grapple with. Follow examples of other countries everywhere uh, especially in Europe. So it goes without saying here that we need to learn from those debates. Uh, because to me, once we have made peace with who we are, but most importantly, with who we are becoming, right? We're becoming. We can't define ourselves purely based on, on the past. Um, uh, so once we make peace with that, that we may perhaps have to call ourselves to something akin to an immigrant nation, or for more acceptable uh, definition would be a pan-African nation. Um, because we are changing as a society and will continue to change in the same way that Europe has been changing lately. And there are benefits to these. Um, once we make this change, policy regime will follow suit because the, there would have been some kind of a consensus conceptually that everything else should follow from there. And the benefits, obviously, of opening up, especially to skilled folks from, especially in the continent. My main interest is the continent and, and the Africans in the diaspora. A lot of Africans out there who are looking to come home to the continent or close to home, and South Africa presents them with, with, with uh, um, it's a very attractive destination for them. But the uncertainty in how we deal with, the, with this thing closes us to that, to that possibility. So my final point then, as I, as I close, Madam Ambassador, final point is that, and this is the main point, we have these problems that we are faced with. And the problems are not of our own doing. Influx of immigrants. And they'll continue to come. We might do all sorts of things. America has been dealing with the same issue. Europe has been dealing with that. So, so we can't sit back and say, continue chasing them away. They're not. Because they're being pushed by, logically, it's common sense. They're being pushed by factors in their own countries. And like any other human being in the world with a basic instinct of self-preservation, they go looking for where life is better. And this is closest, better life. So they'll come. So how, then how do you adapt to that? 
This is a challenge, but a challenge with potential benefits that we can reap. All we need to do is simply redefine ourselves to meet that challenge. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Professor um, Lejana, for that inspiring uh, uh, um, uh, uh, input that leads us into uh, the discussion. I will not even begin to summarize these very rich uh, uh, discussions, but the way in which Professor Mlekiana ends, I think for me, brings us back to the purpose of this uh, exercise. Who are we? Who are we when I say I am South African and I am a South African diplomat? Who exactly am I? How do I define uh, that? And this has been a very rich discussion. It's touched on a variety of areas. I haven't acknowledged our media that is here. Uh, I see Karen is here as a vital component of this discussion that, that, that we have. I was trying to explain to him related to the question that Professor, the point Professor Mdlikiana makes about South Africa cannot fail as, 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 as an endeavor because of the richness of the, what we bring to the table. And a critical part of that is the media that is free. And in a way, I think it's not always clear to our media that actually people wake up and look at News 24 in Geneva, African diplomats to see what is happening because there's like a base currency that comes with it that nobody has instructed you to write. Nobody wishes for a particular outcome in what you have written. So how do we factor in the role of uh, the media? But on the other hand, uh, uh, are we, do you and I recognize each other? I mean, are we s saying the same thing when we say we're South African? It's these questions that we need to ask. And I, I like the, 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 the this project excited me because I think it must also generate a discussion about national identity, national coherence, whereas we weave in the youth and everybody and all of that. So, Minister, I'd like to suggest that this perhaps is maybe the beginning of a very interesting dialogue that must be broadened and followed up uh, by others. Professor, uh, Mr. Singh, the point you made about, you know, we, the level of which we've invested in the ideals in the continent is well worth discussing further, especially with respect to post-conflict reconstruction and development. That is really, really, really important. Professor Zundi, you talk about the, the continent as a contested continent, but also a, a, a continent that, that is not homogenous but it has its own historical challenges. It is the, the most precious currency of the continent that is under contestation, its unity. An incredible amount of money is invested in undermining the unity of the continent because there's 54 of us, a substantial number within the UN system. The amount of money that is spent on encroaching on the collective policy space of the Africans, help, we are going to help Africa establish a common position. 
We're going to help Africa do this and do that. Money was spent to prime Africa to, 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 to commit in a particular way to the Paris Agreement on the basis of preconceived obligations that others thought Africa must take on. Under pressure, Africa took those. A month later, Africa was saying, sorry, we cannot bear these responsibilities. But the amount of money that had been invested going to individual countries, how does our media work with that? And I'm seeing also articles that are coming up that are earthing, unearthing these pressures that are being put on uh, the continent. And I encourage those because it means we're all together in the trenches, you know, trying to uh, 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 defend whichever way we can continental uh, interests. Dr. Zondi, for me, the likelihood of a government that will reverse everything that we have accomplished is probably what drives officials at DECO. It must never happen. But domestically, on the domestic front, implementationally, you talk about a weak civil service. We don't, I would argue, have a civil service. We have a loose formation that, that distinct from civil services of developmental states that doesn't run together, but whose primary business is to outsource functions of the state. DECO cannot outsource its function, it has to do things. So DECO is distinct in that, in being what you would call a, a proper civil service that does deliver. They have to negotiate agreements, they have to show up at negotiations, they cannot hire a consultant. But the day-to-day -day business, and this is to, of, the, of the civil services, to outsource services, clearly the model needs to be addressed by academics. Is this the ideal model? We are locked into it. Does it serve South Africa? I will, with that, I will open the floor to discussion and uh, uh, then come back, give uh, the minister, uh, 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 hand over to the minister to uh, respond, and then DM Porters will um, uh, close this session. I see hands up already. I can't see, it's dark there. Please, there's, there's a, a hand there, it's a flag up. Please, please talk. Uh, thank you very much. Um, introduce yourselves too. Uh, thank you, Ambassador. Uh, my name is uh, Pilani Tembu from the Institute for Global Dialogue. Uh, mine is a two-pronged question, but uh, prior to that, a quick response with a question to the regional nature of our nationhood and what impact that has on policy and the conceptualization of the national interest. Is South Africa a regional state or a traditional Westphalian nation-state? And what impact does that have on our responsibility, both domestically, but also in the region? Now, to the question, it relates to the specificity of uh, uh, foreign policy and its practice. 
whilst uh, the current government's view of the world is underpinned by progressive internationalism, others may share other views. Um, so, for example, the Democratic Align, uh, um, Alliance may be more inclined towards liberal internationalism. What impact um, does that have in terms of the task of building consensus on the specificity of particular foreign policy issues? Uh, how would different political parties, for instance, tackle Palestine, Western Sahara, uh, the African Command? Um, is there a, 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 a hypothetical scenario where, for instance, a different government is in power in South Africa and you know, takes a different stance towards Ukraine, takes a different stance towards the US putting its embassy in South Africa, or not its embassy, but its military um, uh, structures. Now, to that, what processes can be put in place to build consensus on the various contentious matters related to international relations amongst the various political parties, spheres of government, and non-state actors. Last point, Ambassador, is on the exercise of power. When the country's national interests are threatened through the actions of external actors, what tools are we willing and able to utilize? Political, economic, social, military. And how can we strengthen those tools and capabilities while building consensus on their use within the country. Thank you. Try to be balanced. I will take a question from this side and then come back to the other side. The middle doesn't seem to be a middle at all. So I'll start with Ambassador Mklapu. I saw your hand up. You know, it's, thank you very much, uh, Ambassador Seko and uh, Minister, Deputy Minister, and the uh, panel. Uh, <clears throat> one thing that I, I, I thought uh, we needed to do also, you know, I, I was fascinated by an interview that Khalima uh, Motlante did, and we asked him a question. Why is it that South Africa is taking this position on Ukraine? And his answer was, the national anthem, the Sotho version, which was written in 1942, in the middle of the war, is the one that pronounces our thinking in terms of war, peace, and prosperity. That's why it says Morena Borogas Chavasaid, Felicidin Tolimatsanya. It's there, it's deep in our history. We sing it in our national anthem. It's about us, and it tells us our wealth outlook, our attitude. And if you look at the history and the position uh, that uh, South Africa took on that one, and uh, what the minister also referred to on the African claims, which can answer the question that Pilan has just raised. African claims together, taken together with the Freedom Charter, the last clause of the Freedom Charter, shall be peace and security. It spells out very clearly our attitude towards the region. 
So when we talk about the region as a, a main basis of our foreign policy, uh, and, and you look at the dynamics of what South Africa is and this region, uh, it's not just posturing, but it's, it's steeped in reality and history. Uh, and it informs who we are. And even the questions of solidarity that the minister has talked about. You know, you go back in our, uh, in our history. I remember when I was doing Standard 4 in 1960. It does not say anything about my age anyway. <laughs> but one of the songs that we used to sing, I remember going to the zoo, you know, in buses, was Chevelez Congo. Sheveleza Congo, Congo Mom, Sheveleza Congo. Because in the township there was that enthusiasm about the independence of the Congo. And that's where that song derives from. And we used to sing it as kids, Sheveleza Congo. Even the one about take over your country in the castaway. The solidarity of Cuba doesn't start now. We welcome the victory of the Cuban Revolution at that time. I know it as a kid because that song was being sung. Uh, so I'm saying that uh, this progressive internationalism steeped in our own uh, interest, domestic interest, and, and reflecting of that, it's written all over in our history. Africa. What is it all about? Africa, Maibui, Maibui, Africa. That slogan. What was it all about? So when we talk about the African agenda, it's not just a theory or anything. And our own socialization, at least my generation, we grew up with that understanding. Because when we get to begin to interrogate these things at the later stage, Africa, my boy, my boy, Africa, what does that mean? Uh, the regeneration of Africa by fixing ourselves. So, I'm saying that when we talk about the national interest and our foreign policy, uh, you can see it all over in our history, written in song and poem. The poem about Imendi, the sinking of Imendi and the song around it, it tells you something about how we're expressing ourselves on our involvement in that way, in the sinking of Imendi. So I, I think we have to go back even in, 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 in our curriculum, in our schools. Pick on these things because they define who we are. And today when we say anything, we are being inspired by that, that particular history which is written. And when we express our, uh, our national interest, even our national security strategy, which is informed by our national interest, it defines exactly who we are. Because if we don't understand who we are as South Africans, you know, you look at our national anthem, you can look at any angle of it, any language, and you try to take something out of it and link it to the whole question of the national interest in its various ways and different uh, diversity and historical experiences. But the commonality that comes out of there, in the end, defines who we are. And, and I think we should not 
be shy about those things. Uh, because at the end of the day, it explains uh, the positions that we take in our foreign policy uh, positions or any other policy that uh, we move on. And I think for me, that history given my generation uh, and what I've learned, and when I reflect on it, because I've never been subjected to any educational system except Bantu education. I started with it in 1954, so I know it up to university. There's nothing else I know Bantu education. So I'm not saying it was good, but we had good teachers. And that's where our political consciousness derives from. Thank you. I, I just wanted to, you know, bring in that element that uh, sometimes, uh, you know, the certain things that we don't take into consideration, it becomes a, a normal way of us being us. When you talk about Banyana Banyana, we're not talking about anything. It's, it's us, it's our girls. 